I have a copy of the book, the Dhammapada, and also a tape of it. How is that connected to the Pali Canon? The Dhammapada is one part of the Kudaka Nikaya, the one that I said was um, containing all the things that didn't fit anywhere else. So the Dhammapada belongs to that. And um, it is the most beloved uh, book of the whole Pali Canon. It contains 423 verses or stanzas that were spoken by the Buddha at different times and um, on all different subjects. So if one has it, one can actually open it at random and usually find something very worthwhile to uh, be a support in, in one's life. There's a very good translation by Narada Terra, who was also my preceptor, and a very bad translation by a man called Mascaro, published by Penguin. Um, while it reads nicely, because it has some verse in it, it's uh, in many places totally wrong. Obviously, Mascaro uh, is not a Buddhist, so he had a hard time uh, translating it. Uh, Venerable Narada Terra was a monk in Sri Lanka. He's now dead, and his translation is very good. There are about 30 different translations on hand of the Dhammapada, and i just mention those two. It's, um, it's a book which one doesn't just read through, but opens up at times and uh, looks at different verses. And some of the translations, and I believe Narada's translation does too, give an um, idea of the situation that uh, brought about the uh, verse spoken by the Buddha, the uh, question or the uh, situation which was prevailing at the time. So that also makes it quite interesting. It says, do you believe there are antars? But I think what is meant are arahants. An arahant is an enlightened one. I dare say that that's what's meant here. Arahant, A-R-A-H-A-N-T, an enlightened one. In the world today, such as Mother Mira, who also lives in Germany. I have to admit I have never seen Mother Mira. I know nothing about her. Whether she's an arahant or not is totally beyond my um, ability to ascertain. But... There certainly are arahants in the world. There always are. If that wasn't so, I think mankind would have already perished. The, uh, it's an antidote for the evil which exists in the world. So, not only arahants, everyone who lives with goodness and has developed him or herself is an antidote. But arahants are a very strong antidote.
you say everything is due to karma. I don't. I think it is luck or fate for 11 million people to die in the Holocaust. Well, if you're talking about the Holocaust, we are concerned with the Jewish people, and 6 million died. If 11 million had died, there wouldn't be any left. So 6 million died, not 11. And um, it is difficult to believe all these people had bad karma. Uh, Not at all difficult. Everybody's got bad karma. If you just take a moment and remember all the things you have said, thought, and done in this life alone. And then just look at it and see. How often have you thought negatively, angrily, have thought with ill will, rejection, resentment, worry, and fear? These things are inherent in every single person. Everybody has made bad karma. The only thing to do is to make a determination to make good karma from now on. That's all one can do. The bad karma is done. And uh, whether all these people have made equally bad karma or not, who knows? Nobody knows. Karma is one of the imponderables. It is one of the four things that the Buddha would not explain, the intricacies of karma, he said, are like a spider's web. One cannot find beginning nor end of the thread. So one cannot find the causes, one can see the results. And when one sees the results, one should be careful and take heed that one does only those things which are really good. Every thought that is negative makes bad karma. Whether we speak it or act upon it, that's only the second and third step. The thought alone already makes bad karma. So there isn't a human being alive or dead that hasn't made bad karma. How much of it? Who knows? Impossible to say, impossible to weigh up. Another thing which happens is this, that while there is no collective karma, but only personal karma, one does get reborn in those circumstances that one clings to. So very often in the same country, into the same family. So that if there is a great um, disaster for a certain um, ethnic community, then one thinks maybe some made bad karma and some didn't, but it isn't like that. They are born into that community because one has been with them together before. So while it is personally there's the personal karma that we make, there is also a kind of adaptation in a certain society where people make certain bad karma. So that's how it comes about that a whole lot of people have the same kind of fate. But the easiest thing to to know, and you're not supposed to believe anything, 
but the easiest thing to know about others if one gets to know oneself. And if one gets to know oneself, one knows everything about the human race. Everything. So all we have to do is get to know ourselves, and then the whole human race is easily seen. And another thing which is important about getting to know oneself and knowing the whole human race is that if one does, one probably, most likely, finally, has the real urge to get out of it. And one doesn't practice without that urge. If one doesn't want to get out of the human race, the practice isn't really going to take off. One's going to practice off and on. A little here, a little there. If the dukkha gets worse, then one practice a little more on. The dukkha is less, one is off again. So, it's only when we realize that the whole human race can be found within oneself, and then knowing what the whole human race is on about, then comes the urgency. Some vega, the urgency to practice. Because we can transcend. We can transcend the problems of humanity but only if we have found the connection between our own dukkha and letting go of self, letting go of all our passions. When we've found that connection, then we can transcend. So the only thing to do is to investigate oneself. And the more objectively we do that, the easier it is to see. We can, so to say, investigate ourselves as a specimen. One specimen of six billion people. And everything we ever wanted to know about anything, we'll find it there. One of my weaknesses is right speech. I tend to criticize people and complain about certain things that bother me. Can you give me some hints to help me on the right path? Well, first of all, one needs to stop criticizing oneself. If one has a uh, tendency to criticize, one doesn't stop at other people. One uh, begins with oneself, and then one extends it to others. So being critical is not confined just to others. It's a, it's a habit and a tendency which is pervasive. Well, that's the first thing one needs to do, comp- uh, stop criticizing oneself. And the second thing is to give loving kindness to oneself. <coughs> we talked about that to, uh, to some extent quite a large extent during the last week. Start every meditation session with loving kindness to yourself, whichever way you like to do it. And as you do that, you will find that the mind settles down much more easily. So if one has a real problem with this, criticizing and complaining, 
one should do a fair bit of loving-kindness meditation during the day. Can take any of the um, models we have used here or anything you can dream up yourself. It doesn't matter. Method is method by any name. And just go do it to, for yourself, for the people you're with, for those you know, and those that you encounter often. Don't try to do it with strangers too much because one gets the idea quite easily that one can give love to strangers because one doesn't even know their weaknesses. So do it to yourself, the people you're with and those that are close to you and then those you know and that you see often. And do that during the day as many times as you wish. It may take 10 or 15 minutes and afterwards you can go back to the meditation on the breath or the sleeping. If one has love in one's heart, one isn't going to criticize. One still knows the things that go wrong, obviously, but one doesn't have to be a critic. It's uh, not a useful profession anyway, and uh, one doesn't have to complain One can see that some things don't work so well, but having understood oneself, one can accept oneself and others with all their difficulties, but only if we have already accepted ourselves. If we haven't accepted ourselves yet, we won't accept anybody, because there's always something to criticize and something to complain about. The only person in the whole world who's perfect is an arahant, an enlightened one. And we wouldn't even know that we're confronted with one. Because we say only a Buddha knows a Buddha. We only see in another what we know about ourselves. We can't see anything else. We don't know what it looks like. We have no idea what to look for. We have no idea what it should be manifesting as because we are not familiar with it. We all know what an angry person looks like and what an angry person says and how an angry person acts. Very simple because we've all done it. But what a Buddha or an Arahant says or thinks or does is completely beyond our ken. We haven't been it. So... In other words, there is always something to criticize and something to complain about because there's no perfection anywhere to be found. And if we're still looking for perfection in the world, it's better to stop. It's a waste of time. A total waste of time. Time and energy. There is no perfection in that which is so impermanent is constantly beset with dukkha and has no core substance. So as we realize that, maybe that will help us to stop criticizing and complaining and acknowledging the fact that there are two noble truths that we can experience every moment of the day. That existence is dukkha and that there's only one cause for it and that's craving. And when we can acknowledge that and experience that, maybe we'll know 
maybe we'll know what there is. It always starts with oneself. Loving kindness for oneself, not criticizing but accepting oneself, seeing oneself as a potential for enlightenment. That's totally impersonal. That's not me going to be enlightened because if me is going to be enlightened, there's no enlightenment. The total impersonal stance one takes as a potential, that's all. So if one can see oneself in that light, one has a much easier time of it. Also, if one is very critical and complaining, one can't meditate. Negative mind can't meditate. Got to be positive mind. Positive mind that has joy in it, gladness in it, that is um, connecting to inspiration. That kind of mind can meditate. So, best to stop as quickly as one can with that kind of um, attitude and instead imbue oneself with loving kindness and compassion for oneself and then extend it to others. And one must remember that speech comes out of thought. So thought is first and speech is second and action is third. Thought, speech, action. Watching the thought, watching content of thought, fourth foundation of mindfulness, We've already discussed that at great length, labeling what's going on. When we label, then even outside of meditation, we have a good idea of what goes on in our mind. Could you please say more about the meditation subject in the first jhana? I know the focus is on the delightful sensation what can more be said? Also, could you say more about the fineness of breath? I had an experience today that felt like my breath had stopped. Continuing concentration felt like I was holding my breath. I felt like one does when one stands up quickly and then passes out. Perhaps I was breathing very lightly, but it seemed like a reflex to gasp overtook me. Actually, it was scary, but I repeated it two or more tries with the same result. That was done totally wrong. Namely, the attention stayed on the breath. Now it's fine, now it's gone, now I have to gasp. That's of no interest at that time. The attention's got to get away from the breath. If one has been meditating for some time and always been using the breath, some people get so attached to that, they can't get off it. Well, then one can't, con can't progress on it. If the breath becomes fine, it's of no longer of any interest, the breath. That's it, finished. That's the key. The key that got stuck in the keyhole. And the door is now to be opened and... We no longer need the key. The fine breath is of no interest any longer, whether it feels like stopping to breathe or whether it feels like having to gasp. These are only 
possible when we keep the attention on what's going on with the breath. Otherwise, we'd never know it. So we change the attention from the breath to within us, inside of ourselves. And inside of ourselves at that time, there should be a most splendid sensation. If it isn't there, we just go back to the breath. If the breath has, if the concentration has been complete for a while, which means no thinking, and we can actually give ourselves to the breath, to the whole situation, let go of everything else. Let go of thinking about the breath, let go of thinking about the sitting, let go about thinking about anything, but just be there. Then the sensation should be there. The sensation is always there. It's just that we can't get at it. So what should happen at that time is that we're able to actually know the sensation. It should be delightful at that time. When there's fineness of breath, the breath is of no interest any longer. And this is what happened here. There was continuing concentration on what? On the breath, obviously, because it felt like holding breath, felt like passing out, felt like breathing lightly. None of that's right. has no bearing on the matter. Breath is no longer interesting. We don't stop breathing voluntarily. Nobody does. We breathe through our pores, at least. So it's just not interesting anymore what's going on with the breath. It's got to be let go. If one can't let go of the breath, then, of course, one is in a dilemma. That's a real dilemma then. So the thing to do is to start letting go of the breath at that time as quickly as possible, when the breath is really, really fine. Or so fine that one can't even find it. The reason that it doesn't happen is possibly the fact here that it says actually it was scary. Well, scary in the way that because I thought I wasn't going to breathe any longer. Well, that's absurd, isn't it? Because nobody, nobody stops breathing voluntarily. So scary on another level, because when we have to actually give ourselves to the experience, there is nobody that's supporting our ego illusion. So that's scary. If we can't let go of that scare, we can't progress. I already suggested that, and I'll suggest it again that at the beginning of meditation, if there is any chance of getting to the fineness of breath, one should make a determination that one is willing to let go of ego assertion for the time of the meditation and then console the ego with saying, you can come back right after the meditation. But during meditation, just let go. This is what's scary about it, because people think they're losing control. Nobody is in control who wants anything or rejects anything. The only person that's in control of mind and emotion 
as a person that has an inner completeness of peace and joy. That's the only person that's in control. And that's usually an arahant. Nobody else is in control. Everybody else is being swayed by their emotions and very often by the emotions of others. So one doesn't have to be afraid to lose control. On the contrary, this is a way to gain control. As we will find out in the sutta that we are um, reading, we will find that this is the way to gain control. But we have to first be able to let go. So in this case, I would say everything was done wrong. Let go of the breath and let go of the assertion that you're really there. Because that's what we're doing. When we're thinking, that's when we're, what we're doing, when we are aware of it's fine breath, it's not breathing, that's all that. All that is, is the uh, assertion of the one who is perceiving all that. So let it all go. Just let it go. And just drop into that which is really happening. Letting go of me doing it. Just let it be done. As long as me is doing it, it doesn't work so well. Seeing there weren't very many questions, I'm going to give you a chance to ask some if you have dreamt up anything. And also because there aren't so many people, it's a little easier um, if you have any question that you would like to ask now. Don't, don't, don't think in those ways. It's going to get you off your meditation even more. Don't. Don't even think about it. Make it simple. Make it simple and stay simple. It's all very simple once you experience it. It was of no importance. It was just a matter of giving a simile. That's all. Don't even think like that. And what a physicist thinks, what do we know what he thinks? What does it matter? It's not important. Not at all important. So, simplicity is also letting go of ego assertion. Make it very simple. Just what is really happening. Look at everything that's really happening. And with that, 
you will find the way to the real meditation. Okay? Yes? No, that couldn't be possible because you make karma also with your actions. So the resultant of your karmic actions will be actions. So if you, for instance, um, make a, an action which creates bad karma, obviously there will be a resultant action which is unpleasant. So... The actions which happen will have actions as, as karma resultants. Not everything that happens to us is karmic resultant. But I wouldn't advise to try to figure out which is and which isn't and try to find a way out. The only way out is making good karma. Not everything is karmic because not everything is on a basis of Ethics. It's all got to do with ethics, and not everything is on the basis of ethics. There are <coughs> situations of organic and unorganic matter which also have a reflex action upon us. But we can't figure that all out. But obviously, yes, the actions which happen are also karmic resultants. And... Uh, there is no other protection, none, except making good karma. And then in the final analysis, the best protection is, of course, to become enlightened and then one doesn't make any karma. But that takes a little while. Anything else? Could half an hour of Hatha Yoga in the Gompa be appropriate during individual meditation time? Yes, I see no reason why not. <coughs> it can be helpful to have one with the sitting practice. Remember this course with that's a course with lots of sneezing and coughing and nose cleaning. Uh, yes, it's it's useful to do hatha yoga. It seems contradictory that people could be both likely to be reborn into the same family 
and be highly unlikely to be reborn at all. It would be nice. Anybody who doesn't get reborn is an arahant. Could you explain, is this an appropriate way to address skeptical doubt or should I take this more unquestioningly? No, not at all, but find out more about it. <laughs> the um, rebirth happens for everybody who is not enlightened. So it has nothing to do with the fact that one is highly unlikely to be reborn at all. That's not, um, that doesn't exist, that question. Oh, well, it doesn't say that. It says at all. Hmm. It's not highly unlikely to be reborn a human being if one has kept the precepts and behaved oneself uh, fairly well. One, one gets reborn a human being. And if one gets reborn a human being, one might be reborn in the same family. But that's all conjecture, isn't it? Does it really matter? Does it matter in, in the context of one's meditation? Does it matter in the context of common insight? Does it really have any bearing on it? Does it? We did that yesterday already. Exactly the same thing. We went through the whole thing yesterday. Exactly the same thing. It has no bearing on your meditation at all. None. And the only way you're going to be able to really answer this in a meaningful way is through practice. When you practice and the meditation becomes calm and insightful, then one can answer this in a meaningful way. I have already said that the Buddha had four things which were imponderables. One of them is karma, the intricacies of karma. It's another escape route to think about such things. It doesn't bring anything. It's just an escape route for the mind. So now it's not, the mind is not thinking about one's job or one's family. So now it's thinking about that. It doesn't bring any, any, any results, none whatsoever. We've already talked about the fact that there are karmic resultants, that the Buddha did not um, explain the intricacies of karma because he said it would confuse us even more than we are already confused. And there's no reason at all to investigate that, none whatsoever that it's very difficult to be reborn a human being is nothing but an invitation 
to practice. That's all it is. Some vega, urgency. That's all it is. We never know whether we're going to be here again and can do it again. It's just an invitation to practice. It's not an invitation to try and figure out why, when, where, how one gets reborn. Nothing of the kind. And whether there is bad karma in those people that have bad things happen to them, I already said that yesterday. There isn't a person alive. I'll just repeat what I said yesterday. There isn't a person alive that hasn't made bad karma. And the only one to investigate is oneself. Just to look inside of oneself. And having seen inside of oneself what one has thought, said and done, then one knows what it means to make bad karma. And then one knows what everybody else is doing. And that's the only thing that has any bearing on one's behavior and on one's meditation. Because one can make a determination to make good karma from now on. Whether all these people that get killed have made bad karma, you know, nobody who's ever been alive and isn't alive right now is dead. And lots of them got killed. All you have to do is read the history books. We get back to the same thing again. Please don't use your mind in unprofitable ways because you only have a short time to practice. And in that time, if you use the mind in a profitable way, you can really make a lot of difference in your meditation, in calm and insight. But if you use the mind unprofitably, it will go around in circles again and again. And then somebody is supposed to sort it out. Not necessary. Not at all. The only thing why it is said that it's very difficult to have a human rebirth is to have urgency and good karma is to make oneself. And if we have that question again, I'll be quite pleased to give the same answer again. Well, in a way, the person, that the person who is reborn is the same that has made the karma is one wrong view. That the person who is reborn um, is, a, is a different one from the one that has made the karma is another wrong view. The answer lies in the middle. I wouldn't give it a second thought. All I would think about is making good karma. Now all the time from now on that's all that's necessary all the rest is conjecture and it's neither the same nor another the answer lies in the middle and it, it doesn't really bring anything what does it bring what does it uh, bring to one's own practice it brings a lot of thinking and that's certainly not very helpful.
I have heard Theravada Buddhism called the Paramitayana. That's a very nice name, which I have never heard before. And it means the vehicle of virtue. The Paramitas are the virtues, and Yana is the vehicle. So it's a lovely name. I've never heard it before. Would you enlarge upon this distinction as it relates not only to insight meditation, but also to other major schools of Buddhism, such as Zen and Vajrayana? Certainly, the Paramitas, the virtues, are common to all schools of spiritual practice. They are certainly not a monopoly of Buddhism in any way. The word paramita is Pali, and um, maybe that's the note that it comes from Theravadan, but um, they're certainly common to every school that ever has claimed to show a spiritual path. If there are no virtues involved, there's no sense in following it. So it's, um, it's the basis. It's the foundation. Just as we have in this um, sutta that we are hearing, the basis, the foundation is morality. But um, parameters are even more, the more of them. It doesn't relate to inside meditation in any other way, except that if there's no virtue, there's no meditation, and certainly no insight. So um, it only has that basic factor of being a virtuous person. Can you explain this sentence? The four pairs of humans and the eight types of persons in the chanting of homage to the Sangha. I remember very distinctly asking exactly that question 20 years ago and thinking, what a funny sentence. The four pairs of humans, the eight types of persons. Well, luckily, I got a very succinct answer so I can pass that on to you. What I meant by the four pairs of humans and the eight types of persons are the people who have had the past and fruit moments. The past moment is an experience of Nibbana and the fruit moment is the moment which comes a moment later. So there are four pairs of humans because there are four past moments and eight types of persons because Path and food times four is eight. They're called stream entry, once returner, non-returner, and arahant. Arahant is a fully enlightened one. So that is actually the goal of the practice. And all the things that help one to gain calm and insight are useful. But insight is always directed towards anicca, dukkha, anatta, impermanence, dukkha, 
and non-self. So that's the four pairs of humans and the eight types of persons. And those are the ones we pay homage to. Please describe the qualities of an arahant. There are four ways of answering questions. One way, and that's the way the Buddha did it. One way is by saying yes or no. One way is by elaborating. One way is by a counter-question. And one way is by being silent. This question actually asks for silence. Again, it doesn't help us on our way. I have compared that already to the mountain peak, which we have decided to climb because we have been told that the air on the summit is pure, the view is magnificent, and everybody's happy. If we keep our eyes on the peak of the mountain, we'll definitely stumble. We're going to fall into the first crevice because not watching where we're going, we would be very insecure. All we have to do on this pathway is watch each step and eventually, given enough patience and perseverance, there's no doubt that one will climb that mountain. Many people have climbed it before. And we have the best mountain guide there is, the Buddha. There is no better better guide for us to find. So we won't keep our eyes on the summit. We'll keep them where we are stepping right now. Guarding the senses, mindfulness and clear compression. You used to be a mother and wife. I'm afraid I'll have to take exception to that. I'm still a mother. (laughs) My children would be most unhappy if I would deny that. And even more probably my grandchildren. How did you manage to practice Dhamma at that time? Well, I just managed, like most people do. Can you tell us a little more about your spiritual journey? Since you were born in a Jewish family, does Judaism have any influence on you? No, it doesn't. Being born in a Jewish family was an ethnic background and not a religious um, commitment. So it has no uh, bearing on it. Spiritual journey. Just keeping on. It takes a great deal of willpower and self-discipline. And if those two are lacking, there's not a hope. Willpower and self-discipline are the two ingredients that make it possible. Naturally, on the way, it often happens that the mind says, I have to discipline myself again. I really don't feel like it. But there's no help for it. Only those two make it possible. And if one hasn't got those two, 
it's going to be a tedious and long practice. But with those two, it can be quite quick. Another thing which is absolutely essential is to recognize difficulties as learning situations and not try to escape. The most common reaction to difficulties is escape. One doesn't like it in one place, so one goes to another. One doesn't like those people, one goes to some others. Eventually, sometimes that may be necessary. But basically, every difficulty is a learning situation. And only if one realizes that and uses it for that is there any usefulness in the situation. One of the most important aspects of the spiritual journey is a total commitment, not a wavering, should I or shouldn't I? A little of this and a little of that. And maybe I can find it somewhere else. A total and complete commitment to the highest ideal without any wavering. And when that commitment is there, a dedication of oneself to that ideal. And when that happens, then there is no more one's own spiritual journey. There's just the spiritual journey. And there's nobody doing it. It's just happening. Those are the most important ingredients that come to mind. The rest is all extraneous matter. I can say, though, that what has helped me most on this path is teaching. If you have to teach, you've got to know. And if you don't know, it's rather embarrassing, isn't it? So, I spent many nights learning the suttas by heart. And having known them by heart, I spent many years trying to practice them. So the teaching was probably the greatest um, help for me. I can't be sure, because I don't know how it would have been without it. I started teaching almost immediately when I became interested in Buddhism, because my teacher asked me to help him. So I can't really say whether the same would have happened if I hadn't been teaching. But I feel that it is was the greatest um, support that I got. And so even now, I still like doing it. And uh, I'm still continuing to do it after 20 years of it. I can understand why we should want to leave the human race and the gross pains of being in a human body, but I do not know 
where the next stop is or what it looks like. That stops me. What is enlightenment? (laughs) (coughs) The first part of the question, I can understand why we should want to leave the human race and the gross pains of being in a human body. Well, that's all right as far as it goes, but it doesn't work that way. If we have (coughs) a dislike, a rejection against anything, we can't go anywhere. We have to see the human realm for what it is, namely, The Buddha said, it's the best realm to attain enlightenment. We have enough dukkha, particularly with this body, to do something. To come to a meditation course, for instance. And we have enough sukha, the opposite, not to get completely depressed. So it's the best realm to attain enlightenment of all the 31 realms of existence and to have a rejection of it and um, disliking it isn't going to help at all. What will help is to recognize that within this human realm and within the worldly conditions we cannot find total satisfaction. That will help. And to recognize the fact that we are here in order to grow spiritually. So we should be more on the aspect of gratitude and contentment that we are here as human beings having this marvelous opportunity. Certainly, it's um, no boon to be in a human body, but yet, at this point in time, we need this body because Mind and body are intrinsically connected. They are dependent upon each other. And so, if we want to practice, we have to have them both. So, no rejection, just an understanding that on the worldly level, it can't be found. Where the next stop is. Well, that depends where one would like to go to like going on a bus. What kind of ticket are you purchasing? The bus goes to many stops. It also goes to the end of the line. What sort of ticket would you like? And in order to know that, I think one has to know more about the Dhamma. It's not possible to make up one's mind and understand what one really wants to do without having complete information. And complete information takes time. 
and effort to read the suttas of the Buddha is effort they don't read like a novel they are learning and teaching books and that's how they read and so it takes a fair bit of dedication to actually find out what the Buddha taught he taught far more than just meditation but if one can't meditate and can't get the mind to be one pointed it's impossible to understand the Dhamma in depth one can understand on the surface what is being said because they're intelligent beings but in depth and in depth means feeling it not just knowing it and as long as the mind is concerned with just knowing that's not enough it has to be feeling for it so there's a great deal of effort needed in order to find out first of all the the knowledge what possibilities there are other than being a human being and then to find out whether those possibilities are what one would like and having found all that out one has to get an inner feeling for the meaning of that just like one has to have an inner feeling an inner resonance what it means to be a human being most people take it for granted they're just there and they're trying to have it comfortable and nice and be appreciated and criticize others and when most people don't even think about it and never mind feeling what it means to be a human being this is what we can do in a course like this starting to feel what it's like to be a human being not just thinking about it and when we do that we also might get a feel for it what it means to go beyond being a human being but what one could say here which may be of some value the Buddha was a human being and he became enlightened being in a human body at the age of 35 and he taught until he was 80 every single day even when he wasn't feeling well he even taught still on his deathbed last uh, disciple came to see him his attendant didn't want to let him in but Buddha said it's alright let him in he needs to know so he was a human being and he became enlightened in a human body enlightenment is in the mind and we carry it within us it's the letting go of all illusions and delusions but that letting go <coughs> is a major undertaking 
and the very few people that manage that. If one has the definite intention and determination to do it, there's no reason why one can't. Enlightenment is in the mind, but mind includes heart. It's no use just knowing. One's got to feel it. And only then has it happened. It's an enormous letting go process. And you can see from that that the meditation is part and parcel of it because if you don't let go of all the rummaging around in the mind there is no meditation so there is a letting go process there and when the meditation becomes a little more um, stabilized that means one pointed one has to let go also of the ego assertion which is part and parcel of thinking and wanting so there is already a letting go process there and only as that letting go process continues can we see what it means to let go more and more the more we let go the easier it is to live as a human being and it leads to the final letting go eventually but whether one wants that or not depends upon the step I mentioned namely the recognition that while I would like to get rid of my dukkha just like it says here it's quite understandable that one doesn't want to be in the gross pains of being in a human body. I'd like to get rid of my dukkha, but am I willing to get rid of myself? Or would I just like to get rid of my dukkha? That's the question. And unless one makes that connection, there's no way of explaining what enlightenment is. No way of explaining what an arahant is. No way of explaining what it means to go the whole length of the journey. One can go a few steps. But one has to make that connection. And that's something I have already said one should contemplate. Do I just want to get rid of my dukkha? and keep everything else or am I willing to do more than that it's a very interesting contemplation I can recommend it highly because if one does it honestly with a real verve about it one will see that one is constantly producing one's own dukkha and one may actually come to the conclusion that something is amiss and have an inkling of what it means 
to understand dukkha and go the whole way with it. Would you please say something more about stabilizing the different levels of absorption? Are we only to experience the breath and wait for the absorption to arise from the concentration or are we to attempt to access and stabilize the absorption in some other way? There is no other way. Absorption means apana samadhi, full concentration. Before that is neighborhood concentration, upachara samadhi. And before that is momentary concentration, kanika samadhi. We start with momentary, we go to a neighborhood, and then we come to full concentration. And only when there is full concentration are there absorptions. It's the same thing. It's just a different word. It's synonymous. Full concentration and meditative absorption are synonymous. It's just using different expression. There's nothing to be done except get concentrated. Concentrated on the meditation subject. It can be the breath. It doesn't have to be. The breath is only one method. There are many others. Some people can become very well concentrated on loving-kindness and use the feeling that arises because of that subject to enter into first jhana. Some people who are visually inclined can use the casinas, color discs. If they spontaneously arise, they can be very useful. Some people can use the attention on the sensations. Anything is a method, but it has to be full concentration. And when there is full concentration, then there is absorption. It's one and the same thing. Being fully concentrated means to be absorbed in the meditation subject. means exactly that. So there's no split having to do something. All we have to do is stop thinking. And particularly dreaming up new subjects to think about. If the old ones have finally dissolved or have been resolved, or have finally disappeared, let it be. Just be there. So there's nothing else to be done. The stabilizing of the absorption comes about that when one becomes, um, when one has been able to have one or two or three or whatever many of them to stay with them. That's a stabilizing, to stay there. I am contemplating my understanding of dukkha. Good. 
It, like everything, appears insubstantial. In fact, it seems that without ego's involvement, it could not even exist. I'm sitting when suddenly a new sensation arises in my knee. This is impermanence, nothing more. The mind's reaction is to explain the sensation as pain and dukkha is born. In other words, impermanence plus ego equals dukkha. But without the ego's involvement, the equation can only be impermanence equals impermanence. No dukkha anywhere to be found. Is this a correct understanding? If so, can one correctly assert dukkha is? Yes, it's absolutely correct. If there is no ego reaction to pain or discomfort or whatever it may be, loss, blame, dislike, if there's no ego reaction to it, there's no dukkha. And the ego reacts to it because it doesn't want to have that what it is getting. It's getting pain, grief, it's getting uh, non-appreciation, it's getting blame, it's getting all sorts of things, and it doesn't want it. So, not wanting it, craving is born. Craving is dukkha. If there is no ego, which only happens to the arahant, the fully enlightened one, then there is no reaction. Dukkha is, yes, of course. Dukkha is part and parcel of universal existence. It manifests physically, mentally and emotionally. But only if we have a reaction to it. The Buddha said that an enlightened one has one arrow that hits him. An unenlightened has two. The two are mind and body, and one suffers from both. And for the enlightened one, it's only body. And there's no suffering because the mind does not react. But having no ego is a prerogative of an arahant, of the enlightened one. So until then, we've got to practice something, if we want to practice. So what do we practice? We can't say that we will practice to be without ego. That's not a practice. That's a result. That's a resultant which one can make arise if one is ready. But that's not practice. Practice is that which makes us ready. So, we can practice many different things in order to have more equanimity. To realize impermanence in ourselves and in the world around us to realize dukkha in ourselves and the world around us. And as we recognize both these factors and accept them as they are, we may be able to have more equanimity. As we learn more equanimity, we will find that also in meditation, more equanimity will arise. Equanimity is 
actually non-reaction. The more we react, the more agitation there is and the less we can practice. So, yes, this um, equation is perfectly correct and uh, quite interesting because it's sort of like a mathematical equation and uh, quite correct. This morning you said that the senses are our means of survival and indispensable for that, but that we use them for getting pleasure, bringing grasping and attachment. While you were speaking, I looked at the beautiful flowers beside you and was filled with delight by them. I'm sure we all have sudden moments of delight or joy like that and feel a kind of gratitude when they arise. This delight seems to have a different quality from the pleasure you get out of eating a piece of chocolate. Do you think it really is different? And if so, how? Yes, it's different. There's no doubt about that. It's different because eating a piece of chocolate is a grosser sense contact than the delight that comes from looking at flowers. So the more subtle the sense contact, so more subtle becomes the pleasure. And the pleasure can be called delight if one wishes. What I said about our sense contacts, that we're using them in the wrong way, does not mean that we no longer will have pleasant sense contacts. When we have finally ascertained that there is no point in trying to obtain as many pleasant sense contacts as possible and are no longer running after them, trying to get them again and trying to keep them. We will still have them, but on a different level of experience. The pleasant sense contacts which we will have, which we don't search for, which we don't want to keep and renew, will be far purer. And this is something that also happened with looking at the flowers. It wasn't a sense contact one had been searching for, and not one that we definitely want to keep or have to renew. It just happened in the moment. And as it happened in the moment, it was a moment of delight. And then that stopped again. So these sense contacts are, will always be available to us. But they have far more purity and far more impact if we don't go out of our way trying to get them. And in reality, practically all of humanity does nothing else except trying 
to get pleasant sense contacts and then trying to renew them and trying to keep them. Obviously, that's not what we're doing in a meditation course, but surely that is the exception and not the rule. Our whole economy works on the principle of pleasant sense contact. If we don't know that there is something other than the pleasure and the delight that comes from sense contact, we will not be able to let go of our search for them because it's inherent in us ingrained in us to look for happiness and pleasure but as the meditation comes together and there's no reason why it shouldn't I repeat myself all we have to do is stop thinking There's no reason why we can't get the meditation together. Then we'll know there's something entirely different already within us. And then it becomes quite easy to let sense contacts be. As they arise, we experience them. But we don't have to rush around looking for them. This one, looking at the flowers and enjoying them, and being delighted by them is a typical case of having a moment in the here and now being totally there use the same for the meditation and then we don't have to look for any outside triggers being there now I like to say in that connection, there is only now. If you think of the past, you are thinking of it now. That's now. And if you're thinking or remembering anything that was in the past, you can neither Touch it, smell it, taste it, see it, hear it. It's impossible. It cannot have the reality. It can only be a memory. And that memory is now. And the same for the future. If one conjures up the future, one is doing it now. And again, we can't see it, hear it, taste it, touch it, or smell it. And we can't even experience it. We can only think it. And the same with the past. So, there is nothing except this one moment. And in this moment, if we don't limit it through thinking that it is a moment between past and future, 
but recognize it for what it is, namely, all that there is, then it's a moment of eternity. And in that moment of eternity, we can also meditate, right here and now. Because the past and the future, both, are not of any real significance. The moment of this one breath is the moment of living. So maybe that can help. Does the kind of joy one can experience when losing oneself in chanting, Tai Chi, etc., have any relation to the jhanas? Do you think that kind of absorbing activity is useful to practice? Yes, it's very useful to practice. Chanting is useful. Tai Chi is useful. Anything that absorbs one's mind is useful. And the reason for that is, not particularly because it's going to lead, lead one to jhanas, because at the time of being absorbed in that activity, one cannot have greed or hate. It's purifying. And chanting is very much related to mantra. And mantra if it isn't done mechanically, can be purifying, and often is. So, it's a purifying activity when one is absorbed in it. It does not displace meditation, but it can be an adjunct to it. The joy that is experienced in the absorbing activity is due to the fact that one has let go or lost oneself, has let go of the ego assertion and all that exists at the time is the activity. Some people even say that they can get that sort of thing when jogging. And that's not so surprising because they have to be totally absorbed in what they're doing. The joy that one experiences through that has a similar quality, but it's not identical. It is still a very worldly joy, although it can be quite encompassing in one. And it also is due to an outer circumstance, the outer circumstance of the activity. So the outer circumstance of the activity has to be kept going. So one's attention cannot be one-pointed. If we don't keep the outer activity going, then the joy won't be there. And the same also if we see a beautiful sunset. We have to see it, to be absorbed in it and have the joy from it.
So the outer activity of seeing, the outer activity of chanting has to take place. And so our mind is divided. Whereas in the meditative absorption in the jhana, there is no outer activity. There is in the second jhana only joy. So it is stronger, sweeter, has a more penetrating quality, and it's independent of outer conditions. It's only dependent upon concentration. But this kind of joy does give a sort of sample what it can be like. It's an, we get an inkling because the ego assertion is not totally lost, but it is certainly minimized. So it's useful to to practice. (coughs) I noticed the Tibetans doing a puja in the Gompa today. Can you explain to us the importance of the full moon in May? Yes, I was going to do that anyway. The full moon in May is the uh, highest festival for all Buddhists. Now, it doesn't always, it's not always celebrated on that particular full moon day. There are schools that celebrate it in a different month. But May is the most common one. And the full moon day in May, and in Theravadan tradition is definitely the full moon day in May, is the festival where one remembers the birth, the enlightenment, and the death of the Buddha. Whether they actually historically all took place on the full moon day in May, nobody knows. But they are certainly celebrated then. All three events took place under a beautiful tree. And the Buddha often recommended to find a sheltering tree to meditate under as a sort of protection feeling under a large tree. (coughs) The full moon day in May is called Vesak. And It is traditionally celebrated in different ways in the different Buddhist countries. The Buddhist country that I know best is Sri Lanka. Excuse me. For Vesak, one makes lanterns. One doesn't go to the shop to buy them. One makes them. And people use as much ingenuity as possible to make beautiful and extraordinary lanterns. They're made out of paper, 
and cut into all sorts of different shapes and then a candle is put inside and they're lit in the evening so one of the things which is um, a type of Vesak celebration is to either walk or drive along the roads in one's neighborhood and admire all the beautiful lanterns that have been hung outside if one lives in the country one has even more of a chance to see an enormous array at the same time it's a custom that those who have made the lanterns and are hanging them out for display and for the enjoyment of everybody else also have a little stall or little table where they have sweets not for sale but to give away so anybody who comes by and admires their lantern gets a sweet and they're all homemade and they're dreadfully sweet but quite nice so one can spend about yes two to three to four hours walking along the road admiring all the different kinds of lanterns that have been made and eating as many sweets as one wants in fact one is being urged to have them because it is a sort of a traditional custom that at Vesak time one absolutely has to give something to somebody so anybody who walks by is the one that needs to be called over and asked to please take a sweet. Another thing which is often also uh, to be seen are like um, Punch and Judy shows also along the road and uh, usually with homemade dolls trying to think what else I saw <laughs> it's something like Christmas, New Year and Easter all rolled into one and has a great similarity to Christmas because there's light everywhere and even if the lanterns are very simple because they could be also very simple there's still candles and light everywhere another thing that's being done on Vesak is that if one is so inclined one dons a white dress or a white um, suit and goes to the temple and takes the eight precepts as I have explained already on a special day to take special precepts and then stay in the temple, chant with the monks, meditate a little, listen to a Dhamma talk. Well, that part of it you're getting. You're not getting the lanterns. But you're certainly getting the chanting, the meditation and the Dhamma talk. This is a special day, a very special day. And uh, in a Buddhist country such as Sri Lanka, 
it's an official holiday. Post offices, banks, schools, all is closed. And of course, very often, even the children go to the temple with the parents. Uh, there's one uh, restriction I should make, that in the temples all over Sri Lanka, one finds about one-tenth males and nine-tenths females. So when the children go, they usually go with their mothers and not with their parents. Zoom text enabled.